Alrighty, welcome back to episode 12 of the Norwood Noise. Um, thank you so much, uh, everybody, for tuning in last week. Uh, the new segment's got some love, kind of from everything I heard. Got some good feedback, so excited to continue those uh, into episode 12 here today. Lots to touch on. We're going to try and whip through it a little bit quicker this time. That way we get you to the more fun you know, picks and, uh, and uh, trivia segments there at the end. Uh, but a lot to get through. A very busy week in college basketball. Um, but first of all, Graham, how are you doing? How's everything going? Oh, we've been good. Um, you know, looking forward to this week. I got my ranked Davidson Wildcats in action versus the uh, the Rams from VCU. Also, we got a big, big-time game for Xavier. Um, it's the 43rd ranked game in Cintas in Big East play, um, which is crazy because they've only been in there for probably – eight years now um really looking forward to this game against providence so a lot of good ba- uh, basketball coming up so i'm ready to dive in as ready as you are nine years now <laughs> nine first 2013 so i mean they're coming on their ninth year biggest, but that was a good good guess off the cuff there um all righty here we go real quickly we're gonna whip through this um personally for me maybe i would almost say game of the week uh purdue indiana last thursday was awesome mm-hmm. um most watched game uh, in Fox Sports 1, or college basketball game in Fox Sports 1 history, um, topping out at like, I think it was 960,000 uh, viewers, so really close to a million there for that game. Um, Assembly Hall was alive. It was very cool to see Mike Woodson, of course, wearing a suit. Um, <laughs> just all the things uh, going together. Big shot Rob uh, for Indiana, hitting a big one there at the end. And, and just really cool to see uh, that moment for the Indiana students uh, and knocking off a very good Purdue team. And I think only another challenge or, or you know thing to kind of get in the way of Purdue, um, but definitely not something to be worried about if you're a Purdue fan. That's going to be a tough game. That'll be a good loss on the roster, or excuse me, on the uh, resume come March, so nothing to worry about there. Um, to add, I was really, even in a, a loss, and even with the missed shot within seven seconds and the three-pointer at the buzzer, um, Jane Ivey was really good in the second half. Yes, yes. He he added in the presser that um, his leg was bothering him. So who knows if it actually was, or if that's just uh, we lost Indiana for the first time in Assembly Hall for six years. But 19 of his 21 points on the second half. Um, Matt Painter, Purdue's coach, has been talking about the defense all year, and now that's an area to improve. And it I think that was a big decider for Indiana pulling away because they're not going to blow you away with high-level scoring, but they're, they're going to score very well. And I think that that was the main difference why Indiana was able to pull away. Um, I love Woodson um, improving every game um, as a coach and Indiana. This is a, a team that they're just a few, like, good, solid stretches of good basketball away. Now you add the Ohio State win, you add the Purdue win. They just need more consistency. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they can get that going into March or if this is like a next year thing. But I've been thoroughly impressed with Indiana after there's a lot of controversy if Mike Woodson was the right hire or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting for you to say uh, that you're looking for the consistency because they did then follow up that game with a Sunday loss at home to Michigan. And we all know that Michigan has been you know, not, impre- not very impressive at all. Um, so far this year, just hovering around 500 at 9-7. and seven. So a uh, tough one there, a tough look there on the resume, especially a home loss like that to Michigan. Um, but we'll see if they can kind of get back on the tracks moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next game that we're going to uh, dive into is the Michigan State-Wisconsin game. Uh, Michigan State on the road, 6-1 uh, in their conference heading into this game, or 5-1 in their conference heading into this game. It's a very tough um Wisconsin team, eighth in the country at this time. Uh, just a very good grind-out game, um, but Michigan State exploded. They scored the ball at a very high level, um, getting 10 points from three of their bench players, including Hall Hoggard and Jane Aikens. We're going to talk about Jane Aikens a little bit later. Let's keep that name in mind, that he was very pivotal, pivotal in those 43 bench points that ultimately won the game for Michigan State. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Michigan State wrapping up a very solid victory in Wisconsin, taking kind of a tough loss to their resume at this point in the season. So we'll have to see how they uh, respond. I think that was one of their first really, really big tests 
uh, come conference play. And uh, not to say Johnny Davis was uh, non-existent, but uh, it wasn't the Johnny Davis that we had been seeing kind of up to this point um, in conference play. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, Wisconsin responds coming out of that um, and how Michigan State moves forward with that. Um, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but they did seem uh, to move forward just fine. Um, tough loss tonight against Illinois, but we'll get to that game later. Um, next up on the docket was Kentucky-Auburn. That game was awesome. I watched it uh, tip to the tip to buzzer. Um, a lot of fun there. Bruce Pearl loving every moment of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he His post-game interview was awesome afterwards. Hearing him talk about how, you know, hey, hey, this is a football school, uh, but look at the kids, man. Look at the students. Look at our fans, all that stuff. It was really cool to see um, Auburn, obviously, winning that and, you know, you know thereafter uh, becoming the number one ranked team in the country. Um, so just cool to see that moment for Auburn and for Bruce Pearl, um, a guy that's kind of been an up and down, a, a, a you know, debatable coach, coaching higher uh, for many years, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely just good to see them get that win in front of a home home court advantage and, and really see that uh, mm-hmm. that Auburn make that difference. Yeah, I was really upset to find out that we won't see these teams play each other for the rest of the year confirmed. Obviously that this very well could be uh, an SEC uh, championship or Final Four in their respective tournament. Um, so I look forward to seeing this this game again because I would love to see this game with uh, Ty Ty Washington uh, getting the full game. Yeah, absolutely. Because in his nine minutes, he was very solid um, before he went down with that injury. Um, Auburn definitely has great momentum. You have the entire fan base behind them. They were camping out the night before the game. Um, really looking forward to see how uh, Auburn can keep going because they're definitely the hottest team in the country, but it's a very far margin. Uh, to keep going, uh, last week we talked about the mid-majors, namely uh, Davidson, Loyal, Chicago, and Murray State. Right now we're touching on Loyal, Chicago at home. Very tough environment because the fan base loves Loyal, Chicago basketball. Fell to the Missouri State Bears, um, a 15-5 and team going into this game. Not really a standout game on the schedule for Loyal, Chicago, uh, but Missouri State came to play. Um, it was neck and neck, great shooting from both teams in the first half. And in the second half, uh, Missouri State pulled away, led by Isaiah Mosley, uh, who was 14 for 22 from the field, and he combined that with 40 points and eight rebounds. Now, this game doesn't mean a whole lot for Missouri State because, I mean, you're still in the middle of the road. It's really just a momentum change for the end of the season. For Loyola Chicago, this means a lot because now there's more pressure on every single game going forward. Because as we talked about uh, on last episode's podcast, when you're a smaller school or a mid-major school that doesn't really have that non-conference elite schedule and you don't play the top dogs every single night like the Big East and Big 12 are proving to play this year, you really need to do really well in conference play. So hopefully that game doesn't um, bite them in the butt because this is a team that definitely deserves um, a fair seed in this year's tournament. Absolutely, and I, and I think, honestly, if this does anything, and, and I was kind of touched on this last week, but I think if this does anything uh, for Loyola Chicago or for the field, um, is it almost makes it worse for the field because Loyola Chicago is still, you know, most likely going to make the tournament um, either at large or, um, you know, through the through the conference tournament auto bid. Um, but I do think that either way, this is going to hurt their chances of being, you know, that 5-6-7 seed and might put them in a more opportune 8-9-10 matchup. Uh, in which they could upset a higher seed early on, uh, similar to what we saw last year. But who knows? Again, we'll have to see um, how it all shakes out. But I do think, if anything, that disadvantages um, the field more than it does Loyola Chicago themselves. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, uh, my Kansas Jayhawks had quite the weekend, or just people in general from Kansas City. Uh, Matt Norlander from CBS Sports did tweet yesterday. He was like, Chiefs slash Jayhawks fans have to be living in a dream right now. <laughs> uh, can confirm, yes, we are. Um, so Saturday, open up the weekend uh, on the road at Kansas State. Again, Kansas State, not the most impressive schedule, not the pros- most impressive resume, um, but that is always going to be a close game every single year when you go to Kansas State, um, the so-called octagon of doom. Um, that is just every single year, year in and year out, it's going to be a tough game because obviously Kansas State circles that game on the schedule, wants to win that game. Um, that is their you know, that is their big game of the year. Um at least as of right now with the program where it's at. So 
obviously they go on on that. Nigel Peck had a career game, 35 points for K-State, um, shooting a ridiculous clip um, from the three-point line. Um, just really unstoppable play uh, there from Kansas State. And it, and it really seemed as if they were going to win the game. Um, up 16 at half, um, it really did look like it was over. Um, and so that was, yeah, I mean, it personally, as a KU fan watching that game, uh, I really did think it was, did kind of think it was over. Um, but yeah, just a, a great uh, amount of fight shown um, from the Hawks that uh, that game. I mean, it was really unbelievable. Um, but yeah, I mean, that game against Kansas, Nigel Peck shot 8 of 12 from 3. That's a ridiculous, you know, two-thirds clip, 66.7% there. Um, so again, just uh, some really ridiculous stats there from K-State. But Kansas bowed up to the challenge, uh, down 16 and a half. Um, and with Bill Self, uh, head coach of Kansas Jayhawks, his father, Bill Self Sr., passing away the day before. There was plenty of emotion riding into that game for the Hawks. Um, so obviously, you know, you don't want to lose that game for your coach in that emotional game. So they went out and fought. And uh, and as as Coach Self said after the game, he said, they wanted exactly how my dad would have wanted to see him win it. Um, so pretty cool moment there. Um, and yeah, Ochai Abaji with a ridiculous floater layup thing where he somehow avoided the charge um, there with just under 10 seconds to go uh, to put him in the lead. Um, and then Nigel Peck jacked up a three that uh, went off the front iron and KU ended up winning the game. Ridiculous comeback though. I mean, seriously, um, one of my, definitely one of the ones I'll never forget that one. And like, you know, the West Virginia one at home a couple years ago, that was ridiculous. I mean, then obviously the Missouri game. Um, the last border war before this year uh, was awesome too. But point being, um, largest comeback in school history for KU, so really cool, or largest halftime deficit, deficit comeback. Um, so again, just really cool to see them go do that in a, in a tough environment, just another feather under the cap for them. Not necessarily something on the resume that's gonna look very good, uh, but just emotionally and knowing that they, uh, that they took care of business there. But, um, and then obviously, you know, for the rest of you, for the other, 47, I think, 0.5 million, I think I saw today, uh, that were watching the Chiefs-Bills game on Sunday. I uh, know that the AFC Divisional Round uh, game in Arrowhead Stadium Sunday night was a thriller. Um, we won't go into too much detail on that, but I'm sure most of you know what happened there. And then going into Monday, uh, Kansas is at home hosting Texas Tech, which usually you know you wouldn't think too much of you'd think okay it's gonna be close but kansas is gonna get it taken care of but this mark adams team and and for texas tech they had already beat ku this year so they knew uh they came in with the swagger knowing that they could beat this team uh, no matter the environment and uh, obviously allen brought it um allen fieldhouse was packed and loud and ready to go um as it always is but again another one of those games where i think kansas was up 8 10 12 with six or eight minutes to go um and then texas tech slowly just kind of snuck back into the game um, forced overtime, uh, and then in that overtime period, it really looked like Texas Tech was going to pull away. And then again, just another great amount of fight shown um, from the Hawks, uh, capped by Ochai Abaji's ridiculous fadeaway 35-footer uh, that he drained um, to send it to a double overtime. And then Kansas pulling away in double overtime to win it, 94-91. Uh, so just a ridiculous three days. I'm short on sleep. Still need to kind of catch my breath from yesterday, um, but hey, we you know we sleep in May as they always say. So um, yeah, just a great weekend of hoops and a, and just a great uh, great couple of performances from the Hawks. Really good to see them kind of showing up and showing their uh, their true grit. Um, they have a ridiculous five game stretch here, starting with that game. They've got Kentucky at home on Saturday, um, and then they play at Iowa State next week. Then at home against Baylor. Um, I believe, and then uh, on the road against Texas. So mm -hmm. a ridiculous five-game stretch, and we'll see if they can make it through you know, unscathed or with, or with a loss. But even with two losses, I'd still be happy coming out of that stretch. So. Yeah, not to beat a dead horse about how good the Big 12 is this year, <laughs> but the top 10 um, schools with the hardest remaining schedule, you, yeah, I was gonna ask you nine, nine out of the 10 schools are all in the Big 12, the outlier being Kentucky, Notably, one of the reasons that pushes them over the hump is that they have to play Kansas. At, at Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. To wrap up our game recap, we wanted to just quickly touch upon the Michigan State-Illinois um, game. Illinois game, without many great teams in conference play thus far, were um, sitting at 6-0 um, and before Kofi was uh, 
sideline. Then they dropped their first, uh, back-to-back losses. So this was a crucial game for Michigan State and Illinois. Um, it went down to the wire. Um, Illinois was up 14 and a half, and then Michigan State's depth kind of like added, gave them some support. Um, then it was neck and neck all the way throughout. Um, with, without uh, Correo and Coburn, Illinois pulls away by just one point, um, which is just thinning the gap um, in the upper half of the Big Ten. Big, the Big Ten isn't that deep of a conference, um, but the top teams have all been like kind of trading games between Indiana, Purdue, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan State, Ohio State. The fact that they've been able to trade these uh, games in and out is really telling of how difficult it is to go on the road in the Big Ten um, with how uh, the, the environments can be, especially with big momentum changes. Um, I'm very look, looking forward to their conference tournament. I think it's going to be one of the better ones just because the drop-off from like the good teams and the bad teams is just enough where like we might see like a run, like Michigan gets it together, Iowa gets it together, Rutgers and Ron Harper just do what they did earlier in the year against Purdue. Yeah. I'm looking forward to their tournament probably the most other than the uh, Big East. I would agree. I, I think I was looking at that too. I think Michigan's one of those teams, especially that you got to keep an eye out for. I think they can get it put together. I do think Jawan Howard's a great coach. I think Hunter Dickinson hasn't been a whole, you know, all that impressive this year, but I do think, like, he's still got it. He's still there somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Michigan's definitely one of those teams you got to be careful for. They could get dangerously hot. I also think Ohio State's the same way. They're kind of just hanging around that 15 to 25 range in the top 25. Um, everyone, at least in the Big Ten, I think is kind of forgetting about them a little bit. Right. Um, and, you know, nothing against Ohio State, but they don't have – it's not like, you know, you got Illinois and Indiana and Purdue who have ridiculous home court advantages. Ohio State's not exactly known for that, so I think that's one of those things where they're going to get to that neutral site, and I don't think it's going to affect them that much, where that can really affect other teams. Mm-hmm. I think, obviously, Indiana is greatly aided by their home court advantage. I would say Purdue is as well, you know, teams like that. So I think it'll be interesting to see how they roll into that conference tournament. Yeah, as someone who's seen um, Value City Arena or the Schottenstein Center, as it's known – it's not even called the arena where Ohio State plays. Um, it's very big and very cavernous, so it doesn't really get that loud. Um, the, the students, it doesn't feel like they're immersed in the crowd. But before that, in St. John's Arena, where the um, the pep rally slash skull session is for Ohio State football games, is unbelievable. Yeah. And they they used to, before COVID, they would play one game at um, St. John's Arena. But uh, they've kind of just uh, gotten rid of that and – I really love those those that small tight atmosphere that you yeah. just feel so close to the game and Schottenstein Center and you just don't feel that. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. Like you saw that um, Chris Beard Texas did earlier this year, and then Seton Hall did it just this past week, uh, where they've been doing students only games at those smaller kind of practice facilities or things like that. Please keep yeah. those coming. Those are awesome. Like I love watching that. Texas was at their volleyball arena. Seton Hall's was last weekend at I don't know what arena it was, but it, it had like a stage. Mm-hmm. Like that's so sweet. Like yeah, you I'm, know that one game out of the year. I'm not asking you to make it a conference game. I think Seton Hall doing that is pretty ambitious. But right. But pick any non-con game, throw a game in some smaller venue, and pack the house and and really bring it. Um, I think that'd be really cool if we could see more of that. And I'm especially a fan of it, like when it's like a weird Saturday noon game. Right. That like I'm never gonna watch, like. TCU at Kansas State, right. but then if you make it a battle of the purples at, you know, whatever practice facility, exactly. like, all right, exactly. you know, yeah, maybe I'll tune in. Or like, for example, like, I know for KU, like, right next, literally right next to Allen Field, that's connected to the facility is Haresh uh, Athletic Center, which is where they, their volleyball team plays. Mm-hmm. And I've been in there for, you know, events where they've got the bleachers out and everything. That would be awesome. Like, yeah. seeing that as an all-student game, that would be so sweet. So, yeah. again, something to just keep an eye out for, and I think, obviously, being avid college basketball fans, we're going to continue to encourage. Um, really quickly, just to update you, we I know we were both kind of keeping an eye on this. Auburn did pull away from Missouri, uh, just won 55-54, so Auburn oh, wow. was still uh, on that, uh, what was it now, 17, or no, 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 15-game win streak. Um, so, yeah, 55-54, um, but yeah, so uh, that'll be a good win for Auburn. Um, I mean, not really. I don't know if I can even say it. it's a good win, but they got a win. With it. A win, nonetheless. Yes, got a win on the road at Missouri. Um, anyways, all right. So that wraps up. Oh, one other note worth uh, putting out there: LSU two losses last week. Um, I don't think anything to panic, but a loss 
against Tennessee and the loss against Alabama. Of course, Alabama's going to play to their opponent's abilities. So, you know, we don't have to digress on Alabama anymore. But worth noting that LSU did take two losses last week. Okay. All right, Graham, we'll let you kick us off with our headlines. All right. So first thing we're going to dive into is uh, Coach Chris Mack is out in Louisville. Um, you Xavier fans might recognize the name. He was um, got us 213 great wins at his time at Xavier, including um, eight tournament visits out of uh, his nine years, four Sweet 16s, Elite Eight. He's definitely a Xavier legend. And then kind of the estranged villain arc began in Louisville. Um, and he, he kind of – it was a very um, interesting move because obviously Louisville is a sought-after job, very historic program, and I think it still will be. But he inherited right after the Patino um, and all the scandals and the sanctions were coming in. I mean, so, he, was put, he was put in a tough situation. Yeah, and I just – it was just such a strange jump that he went from Xavier, um, who at the time was still in the A-10, to, like, make a huge jump to an ACC powerhouse that's – what that that alone is hard, and then to inherit all, the, all those problems. I think from the start he was in a tough spot. Kind of turned it around, and the COVID year that was uh, suspended or uh, canceled, rather, that was probably his best shot, and kind of never like got that groove back. Um, and when the like the negative press and the negative attention came on the job, I just feel like it just got worse. I mean, multiple bad losses against inferior teams, and then he kind of became like the strange media persona. Yeah, I it was really weird. Yeah. You never saw that uh, when he was at Xavier. You never saw him you know, being short with the media or being short with any of his players or anything like that, at least publicly. Um, and, yeah, really interesting to see kind of some of his interviews as he went on the stretch. Yeah, it, he, he just, he's always been like kind of like a, you know, I'm going to be buttoned up. I'm gonna have the, I'm just gonna be, things are going to be done this way. But it was kind of like, oh, a respectable older, older generation coach, even though he's like a relatively younger guy. But then it just kind of became just, like, snappy and arrogant and, like, I mean, this guy's just a jerk. Um, one that comes to mind that I saw is after a game, um, I, I'm sorry that I don't remember who they were playing, but the team that they were playing was just week, was just going um, on run after run after run. And a reporter asked a very eloquent, respectful question of what his philosophy is for cooling down runs calling timeouts, changing the rotation, whatever it might be, what's his philosophy for that? And he sna- like answers very sharply, I will call timeouts when I want to call timeouts. Yeah. And I just think that when I saw that clip a few days ago, I was like, "This is th- that's when I knew if you have negative attention on your job and you're acting like this, you've just like given up. Right. Um, I believe that was after the Pittsburgh loss. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's interesting, and, and I don't know. I mean, because if you lose this job, right, which he's, clear, he's clearly going to, and I don't think it's official yet, but it's they're in the works of, of you know, figuring out uh, his leave. Um, you know, what's next? Because Louisville's a very sought-after job. Obviously, he was put in a, dis, in a you know, disadvantageous situation coming in after Patino, um, and Louisville's never really been – Patina Louisville since he left, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't had a ranked team since, those kinds of things. But, like, what's next? Because I don't necessarily think that, I mean, as far as I know and that it's on my radar, there's not going to be any really big high-level jobs opening this year. Um, and I don't really think there's anywhere else kind of under that same level um, that is a really big possibility. The first one that comes to mind personally for me um, the Syracuse job, I know Jim Beheim is, I'm assuming, or at least from what I've kind of heard around that, that around that idea is he's being kind of stingy with the spot, um, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to leave, but also it's a pretty bad look when you're, you know, 500 in the ACC and your two sons are taking the most shots on the floor. Um, so again, we don't really know what's happening there, but I, that would kind of be my first thought, uh, you know, yeah. thought, but, um, three come to mind for me. Okay. Um, I think the most likely is Maryland. I was just about to say that. I, right, right when you said um, that, I was like, man, I forgot what the Maryland job. And then one to watch if 
I think what will happen if Georgetown gives up on Patrick Ewing, yeah, it will be uh, Patrick Ewing come be a Georgetown-affiliated job because I don't think they'll just can him. He means too much to the school. Yeah, absolutely. And then to complete the Xavier fan villain arc would take Lavelle Jordan's job at Butler. Yeah, so I did see that one mentioned uh, on Twitter. I don't think he would stoop. Okay, let me let me rephrase this before I say anything offensive. <laughs> Nothing against the Butler job because I know it's historic and I know what Butler's done and I know that they're in the Big East now and it's different than when Brad Stevens was there. But that's essentially he'd essentially be inheriting a rebuild and yeah between those three options, I think George. I mean, but Georgetown's kind of in the same situation. Yeah. To to be fair though, I. I feel like, I mean, I don't know anything. This is just my hunch <laughs> that Butler, they might have faith in Lavelle Jordan. He's recruited fairly well. He just has that I think success. it's interesting because I feel like the, I would agree because I think the fan base is kind of split. Like yeah. some people really, really hate him. Like there's literally a Twitter account dedicated to tweeting every day until Lavelle Jordan's fired, <laughs> which is hilarious. But then again, I agree with you. I think there's plenty of people out there that are, that, are you know loving what he's doing mm-hmm. recruiting wise and and keeping everything kind of in house and taken yeah. care of. So uh, the final thing that we'll add about Chris Mack, um, unless you have anything after I say this, is um, it it's very weird case. So let's say you're at a smaller school, mid major school, you have great success, and the thing that is, is you either stay in house and you go, you're there for till you die, right. or you move up and then you have success and then you're there and then you bounce around or whatever it is. But if you fail, it's like, oh, you just like kind of stay and you just find like a Maryland job or something. But he, had, he it kind of just blew up in his face. It did, yeah. So it's going to be very interesting. Like, does he take like an associate head coach somewhere? I don't think that he's that type of guy. No, I agree, and, that, I, and that's what I was thinking. Like, I I think he like he wants a head coaching job. I just don't know where. I mean, I agree. I think Maryland's now that I think about it, it's probably the most obvious one. Um, but then again, like I don't know if Maryland's looking to hire higher than that, or that made no sense, but hire, you know, maybe a higher level coach than that because yeah. Chris Mack hasn't had a good team since twenty eighteen when he left Xavier. And, yeah. You know And it's also know. it's also fair to add that like it's just such a strange thing that will he stay in the power six? Right. Does he like kind of go down? Does he take like an eight ten job, a West Coast conference job? Exactly, because I could see him doing that as well, you know. Because, like, when you, if you told me, like, two years ago, after, like, the canceled, tur- cur- canceled tournament, when he had that ranked team that was definitely poised for a good run, if you're like, hey, Chris Mack's an available job, we'd be like, oh, yeah, he should go this place, this place, this place. But when it blows up in his face like that, right. I'll be very interested to see uh, where he goes. Absolutely. Another early coach that's doing uh, better than Chris Mack is. Um, Mike Woodson in Indiana, uh, after all the debate of him, you know, was this the right hire, was this not the right hire? Obviously, the Indiana game is huge. Um, I would like to touch on uh, his suit games, um, currently undefeated in suits and still continues to be. Let's continue that trend, please. Mm-hmm. Keep bringing it back. Um, and then, Graham, I'll turn over you. Any, any other Mike Woodson notes you had? Uh, not much. I just it's it, in a year where there's a lot of coaching carousels, uh, n- new guys in new places. I'm just blown away that he's been able to get this new team, new coach. He's completely gotten rid of everything that Archie Miller did in that short span. Or didn't do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's just kind of changed everything. And usually when you we see those, you lose to the top teams, you beat the bottom feeder teams, and you compete in the middle. But he's kind of just been all over the place. But he's won the big games, the big games that count. And I think if I'm an Indiana fan, like I – I'm all in on Woodson right now. I would agree. Totally agree. Especially the emotion he showed after that win against Purdue on Thursday. Oh, yeah. Love to see them getting riled up. Exactly. Um, I'm going to let you take the take the lead on this one, but uh, a couple notes about Imani Bates, as well as we're also going to touch on the, the Penny Hardaway meltdown, which was, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it shows that he still got that, that player fire uh, in him. But I'll, I'll let you start off with Imani Bates first. Okay. So... We wanted to talk about some of the dangers of reclassifying and one and dones, but the most notable one I wanted to talk about was Amani Bates. Amani Bates is on um, the Memphis team that is underperforming drastically. They're now ten and eight. 
And Imani Bates has been in and out of major parts of the rotation, different parts of the game, starting, coming off the bench, point guard, wing. Like, he's just been all over. They're trying to find where he succeeds. And right now he's 10-3-2 and and on 38% shooting. I found um, this pretty cool thing. This is all uh, rumors and hearsay, so we can't take this for fact. But there's a rumor that him and now MSU commit um, – MSU player Jane Aikens that we talked about earlier um, having a falling out at Ipsy, uh, Ypsilantis Prep where Imani Bates went for his senior well, his junior year I guess of high school and the camp said that it was either him or Aikens and Izzo made his choice now this paid off for Tom Izzo drastically right. um, but there's a lot of red flags when he got to uh, Ypsilanti Prep he was extremely selfish um, like Ball's life and overtime and all those like big high school recruiting and mixtape companies were showing like him just having like altercations with his teammates about where they need to be, why he isn't getting the ball, and it's just a bad look when you leave um, a respectable high school program in Lincoln, in Michigan, to then start a new prep school with your dad. Just right. it it just wasn't a good look, and then he leaves early. Now Aikens has been that. He's played in every game but one. He's the glue guy, 15 minutes a game, decent stats all around. Um, it's just really weird. I, I don't know what people expected of Imani Bates because they knew he was young. He knew this would be a, definitely a transition year. But I don't think we expected it to be, like, this catastrophic. Um, to add to this, Penny Hardaway has kind of just been all over the place. Um, before we get into this, I just want to add that he – if there's one thing that you praise Penny Hardaway for, is he can recruit. He's yeah. gotten great players, um, even NBA players, Purchase Achiwa and James Wiseman, most notably. But he had a full meltdown a few days ago on a presser um, after a loss against uh, SMU. A few, we're, we're gonna we're gonna bleep out these. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, a few major quotes were: um, "We have four freshmen starting. Y'all need to act like it." Act like we have 17, 18-year-olds trying to learn how to play against 22 to 23-year-olds. Stop disrespecting me, bro. Don't do that. I work way too hard. And they asked him if he's the right guy for the job, if it's, is this the right fit, and he just says, stop asking me these stupid bleep questions. Yeah. Um, they talked about his roster, and he said, if I had my roster the way the SMU does, then I feel like I could do whatever I want to do, which I just didn't understand that quote at all because – he has the, the entire roster is to his design. Right. And his recruits, he gets to play. Like, he doesn't have any interference or anything like that. And on the media, he says that they write these BS articles about me, and all I do is work and try to do, like, to my best ability. When you have multiple big ego recruits and your coach has a big ego and isn't, has zero accountability, they haven't had any cohesion, it's just a disaster in Memphis right now. I would agree, and I think, you know, you mentioned his recruiting, and, I, and I'm all in on, on Penny Hardaway being a great recruit and a great basketball mind, um, or recruiter and a great basketball mind, but that's one of those things, and I'm not suggesting this by any means, but that's where a great assistant coach goes, right? Like, that, that is the definition of a great, a great assistant coach. He's a great recruiter mm-hmm. and a great basketball mind. Like, look at, look at Mark Adams at Texas Tech. Yeah. Obviously, he's having success in his first year as a head coach, but prior to this, he had never been a head coach before. He's an older guy getting his first year at head coaching right now, but he's a great basketball mind and a great recruiter, and that's all he did for Chris Beard for so many years at Texas Tech. And so what I don't understand is I almost – obviously, like, I understand why Penny Hardaway is the coach and what he means to Memphis. I understand all that, and I know he's not going to go back to being an assistant coach anywhere at this point pretty much. But I would say, like, I feel like – Memphis almost has the positions flipped. I almost feel like Larry Brown should be the head coach and Penny Hardaway should be the assistant. You know, I, right. I just, I don't know. I feel like it's almost a title thing for Penny where, um, knowing he's the head coach. Where does the villain arc conclude with Chris Mack and Penny Hardaway being on the same coaching staff? Exactly <laughs> right. Where, where can we get that figured out? Exactly. Um, all right. Another note that we want to throw in there. Dickie V uh, officially out for the year uh, with ESPN. Um having uh, throat surgery uh, hopefully here soon. So, you know, thoughts and wishes are with him. Hope hope the best for him, obviously. Hope for a speedy recovery, and I hope to hear his voice again next year. I, I, 
obviously his voice is synonymous with college basketball and hoping to see more out of him. But unfortunately, he is shut down for the year per uh, doctor's recommendations. So. Mm-hmm. Um, the final, uh, well, second to last thing that we want to add in news, uh, Bobby Hurley, Arizona State's head coach, verbal altercation involving one of his players. They were both going after their, one of the refs. Um, they deemed it uh, very unsportsmanlike, and he suspended for a game and was fined $20,000. Uh, just, you know, we love a good coaching outburst. Um, Bobby Hurley's one of my uh, favorite coaches that isn't involved with one of my supporting schools. So I'd love to see him get fired up. Maybe you need to retain it just a little bit. You are a leader of young men. Um, and then the final bit that we wanted to add. That you wanted to add. No, this is a this is a Evan, Evan Shibel, you are a part of history. You can be a part of this. You can say we. Davidson Wildcats are ranked for the first time uh, since the 2015 season. Um, this is just unbelievable. They are now on a 15 game win streak. This is the second hottest team in the country in terms of wins other than Auburn who's now one in the country. It's a pretty elite company. Yes me. Um <laughs> They, that's that's what top top one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they now take on um, A10 rival Virginia Commonwealth on Wednesday, right after uh, the Xavier Providence game. So I will be juiced up. I get to double header on CBS Sports Network there for you. Oh yeah, I, I get to witness um, a great Xavier game, and then as Hopefully. soon as oh, oh yeah, <laughs> and then as soon as we're done with that, get to see my Davidson Wildcats on national TV. I only get to see them play about uh, seven or eight times a year just because um, the the TV market in Davidson, North Carolina is not that hot. No. So we take advantage of every game that I get to see. I'm very looking forward to it. Um, they just have a really well-balanced team. Senator Bob McKillop has done a great job um, in his 33rd year <laughs> in Davidson. It's unbelievable. The, I, I love it, though. I mm-hmm. love it. And to make it even better – um, the black jerseys were in from Under Armour, so the belt will be blacked out. So we are very looking forward to um, these next coming games for my Davidson Wildcats. That's awesome. Yeah, I've got a good buddy that goes to Davidson. Um, so, Elias Henderson, if you're tuning in, shouts, and you better be all blacked out for that game tomorrow night, <laughs> or I guess it'll be tonight um, when we upload this tomorrow morning. But again, um, that's awesome. So, all righty. Picks time. Uh, let's run through this semi-briefly. Let's just leave it at the at this. Um, Graham and I, neither of us did very well last week. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Firing us off here. Florida, Tennessee, at Tennessee tomorrow night. Uh, Tennessee minus 10. So, again, this is Tuesday, January 25th that we're recording. Wednesday, January 26th are the three games that we have selected. Go ahead, Graham. Um. This Florida team, I just don't think that all the pieces are quite there. They're so inconsistent. Um, they've been scraping by some of the bottom feeders of um, the SEC. But 10 is a large margin. Um, but I will add that Tennessee, I think, is not getting talked about enough. Um, this Tennessee team is very talented. They're balanced across the floor. Um, I think that the home field advantage adds a little bit more. Um, very hard to play in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, I'm going to take Tennessee, and I think that 10 is right about where I would go. Um, I think that Tennessee will win by 14, 15 points. I would agree with you. I'll take Tennessee and the points, cover the points. Um, all righty, next up, a little Big 12 matchup for you. Iowa State uh, on the road at Gallagher-Iva. Um, Oklahoma State minus four. This Iowa State team was one of the best teams in the country for a little while, and then starting to implode uh, once they got to uh, Big 12 play. So here's my thing: Were they really ever that? Yeah. Incredible, you know, because like I'm not, and it's nothing against Iowa State personally, but I think they had a couple good wins. Obviously, beating Memphis and Xavier at that preseason tournament. A um, couple other good wins there, a good win against Iowa, you know, things like that. But I don't think Iowa State was ever. You know, top ten in the country material. I think they're more of. I think they're more appropriately rate, 
appropriately ranked now. Yeah, I think that um, it will be a neck-and-neck game. I think Iowa State has a tendency to kind of slow you down, make you work for your shots. They run that stupid 1-3-1 with uh, with their tall guard up top. That's just It's so annoying to play against. It's very difficult to play against. Um, Stillwater, I feel like it's an 8 p.m. game. I hope it's packed. I I really just don't know what they're fans. It's been so hit or miss this year. Usually it's a really tough place to play, but this year it's just been kind of eh. I think a four is a perfect line. I think Oklahoma State will squeeze by this game by less than four. A one-possession game for the Cowboys. Um, Alrighty, I will go contrary to you there. I'm going to take Iowa State in this game, uh, plus the four. Um, I I do think Iowa State will get this win on the road um, and then have, obviously, looking ahead to Kansas coming to their place next week. Alrighty, in the last college basketball game of the week, or on the Wednesday docket that we're going to talk about, Texas A&M at LSU. LSU coming off two losses. They are eight-and-a-half-point favorites. Graham, what do you think? Um, the Texas A&M game, I, I got to see them play Kentucky, and they blew me away. Um, I didn't. I definitely underestimated them. I think that eight-and-a-half is a bit steep, um, but this LSU team is very talented. They're looking for a big win. Um, they've had four losses. They, you know, We talked about how they dropped two games last week. Um, after being very good uh, prior to SEC play. Um, I think eight and a half is a perfect line. I think um, Texas A&M will cover, but this will be an LSU win in Pete Maravich Assembly Hall. <laughs> um, I am going to go contrary to you again. Um, it's almost like Vegas kind of knows what they're doing with these lines. <laughs> um, I'm going to take LSU to cover. I think LSU coming off a tough week and Will Wade's hot head uh, will carry them past uh, <laughs> Texas A&M uh, at a safe margin. And then, all right, uh, because we are absolutely not touching the chiefs Bengals uh, line on Sunday, we're going to talk uh, – let's talk a little NFC championship for you. Uh, 49ers going on the road to the Rams. 49ers 2-0 against the Rams this year. Are they going to do it a third time, or is Matt Stafford going to get to his first Super Bowl ever, which I think everyone in the world is rooting for, um, outside of, of, of course, uh, 49ers fans. But we're going to take Rams 3.5. What do you got, Graham? Uh, I would love to see um, the 49ers kind of find – defy all odds um, and beat them for a third time because I doubt they've been favored at any of their meetings um, beforehand. But I just think that this Rams team is, is special. Uh, they have so many weapons, uh, two in the backfield with Akers and Michelle, and then you add in Cooper Cup and Odo Beckham, who's been playing very well. Um, so well he had to get drug tested. <laughs> um, and you combine that with a defense I think will get to Garoppolo. Um I mean, I never really am comfortable betting against Jimmy G because he always seems to prove me wrong. Um, let's see if he does it again. I will take uh, uh, I will take the Rams by around ten. Okay, um, I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna take Rams win and cover, but I agree with you there as well on that Jimmy G point. Um, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like all odds against him against the Packers last Saturday, and mm-hmm. somehow gets it done. Um, it's just one of those things where he just seems to execute in the smaller places that you don't really ever see. Um, and it's just interesting to me seeing that and, and watching that. Year in and year out in the playoffs, it's like, oh, my gosh, the 49ers, are, they've won a game or two again, and it's just shocking every year. Um, but, again, yeah, uh, I'm going to take Rams to cover three and a half. Okay. Trivia segment. Let's go. Uh, you kicked it off. Or, no, no, I kicked it off last time. Mm-hmm. So do you want to kick it off this time? Yes, I would love okay. to give you this. Um. Now, I will add before this, uh, court designs were not taken into account for this question. Okay. I'm intrigued already. All right. So three notable Division I basketball courts are known for their unique designs. These three courts deviate from the traditional oak palettes. These three courts feature very different uh, colorways that we are normally used to. What three schools are known for their different colored courts? So just colors, not... Yeah. So we're not talking Oregon. Yeah. Like not Oregon's Oregon. oak. Okay. I know Memphis is blue. That's one out of That's three. One. Um, give me, I want to say, gosh, I want to say Eastern Washington's is red. Or is that their, that's their football field, isn't that's it? Football okay. Field. Um, so we'll go nothing there and I'll give a third. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like there's a red court somewhere. Can't put my finger on it. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Obvious. 
Yeah, Memphis is weird. That's they can't do any. They can't do anything right. Yeah, I know, dude. Every time, no one when they played Alabama this year, I was looking at. It, I was like, oh my god, it's so hard to look at. Um, let's see. Man, I feel bad. This is not popping off the head for me. Um, I feel like there's an obvious one I'm probably missing. Is there one in the Power Five that I'm missing? No. No. Okay. So it is a different. Um, let's go with what school would do this? I know Boise doesn't have blue court. I've already looked at that. Um, you're looking at me like they do, though. <laughs> um, does Wyoming have a yellow court? Is that the final guess? Yeah, I'll give you that one. Uh, you are correct with Memphis. Memphis features okay. the blue tiger court. Okay. Um, and on the beating path of the Boise State blue court, uh, California State Bakersfield features a navy court. I never would have gotten that. And um, Oakland University in yeah, Michigan no. <laughs> features a dark brown and gray court. That's hilarious. That's actually pretty sweet. I actually think I have seen that uh, Oakland one before. Um, and yeah, Cal State Bakersfield, not a chance. Um, Already, your turn, Graham. What was the first team to get to uh, the milestone of 20 Final Four appearances? I'll give you four options. Mm -hmm. North Carolina, Kentucky, Duke, or UCLA? Right, I'm gonna scratch away Duke off the bat. Well done. Well done. Um, people, people think Shashevsky coached there forever, but he did mm -hmm. not, unfortunately. Uh, or, or fortunately. Depends on how you look at that. And I just doubt that Dean Smith was there early enough. Between Kentucky and UCLA, I'm gonna guess the wooden years were enough to get you the first 20. That is incorrect. Oh. It's going to be North Carolina. Wow. Was wow. the first team to reach 20 Final Fours as of 2020. It was that year that they reached the 20 mark. Oh, wow. So it was recent. Like, it just happened. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, that was I just I didn't even take it that way. Yeah. So, yeah, North Carolina, okay. first team to reach 20 Final Fours as of 2020. Uh, and they've appeared in the national championship game 11 times. Wow. Okay. So there you go. Alrighty, that'll wrap the that'll wrap the trivia uh, for this um, for this uh, segment here. Um, Alrighty, we'll move on and we'll wrap with our musketeer minute. We'll bang this out here in these last two and a half minutes and keep it under keep it under fifty, hopefully. DePaul uh, on the road last Wednesday. I was there in person. Uh, that was a bonsai trip and a ridiculous drive, uh, but a lot of fun. I love Chicago. I've been there a couple times. It was good to see it, even in the short amount that we did. Um, <laughs> There was a tweet after the game because I don't know if you watched it, Graham, but the last second shot there was yeah. the ball. Some DePaul fan had their hand like in the camera. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see who it was. I wish I could give him credit. I can't pull it up, though. Um, but uh, some sports writer on Twitter was like, man, there were nine DePaul fans there, and someone somehow got their <laughs> hand in the way. Uh, can confirm, uh, not a great capacity that evening. 24% capacity in Wintrust Arena. Which um, is just a shame. It's so beautiful there. It's a great arena, and I and I do think, like, again, it's it's all about the program and everything, and obviously it was a Wednesday night, so it's a little different, and it's an 8 o'clock game. But, like, even the students, like, they didn't even stand the entire game. Like, and that was just unfortunate to see. So really sad to see um, that. But again, it was fun. Big group of X fans there. I think a lot of graduates, alumni that live in the Chicago area mm -hmm. um, going to the game. Um, so really cool to see that. But yeah, awesome to see that game um, and the comeback that was put together there by X. Uh, good comeback. But I think it's, again, one of those things that kind of rolling into the talk about Sunday with the loss at Marquette, um, which is obviously a much rowdier atmosphere. Um, Putting themselves behind the eight ball and not getting out on the jump early is something that's hurting Mark, uh, hurting Xavier, I think. Um, and it's something that you can't do against really high-quality Big East teams. I think they got away with it against DePaul. Um, but again, doing that tomorrow night against Providence or even on the road on Saturday at Creighton is going to be really, really tough. Yeah, it, it was a cause for concern uh, without Freeman Liberty. Um, but you take that out of consideration. This DePaul team played very well. They, they shot at a high clip. And, I mean, if that's what it takes to be a one-point game, very confident when we play them in Cincinnati in a few weeks, 
I don't think that this is much to worry about um, for Xavier. Um, in the next game, Marquette, wow. Uh, you know, you looked at Marquette's previous, like, four or five games, and you're like, well, wow, they're, you know, they're starting to pull a run, but, like, where does it stop? Well, it definitely didn't stop when uh, Xavier played them. Marquette played very well. Um, they play fast. They, they play poise. It, 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 Shaka Smart has done such a good job because I feel like they were constantly – like playing as fast as possible, but at the very same time, it never felt like that they were out of control or anything like that. Um, you know, uh, Coach Steele is was very adamant about the second war, which is right after the first media timeout. So the section between, in a perfect world, the 16th minute to the 12th minute is where Xavier struggles, mm-hmm. and I it's just happened game in and game out where we just get behind the eight ball. And since we aren't that proficient in um, our offense quite yet, it, it just feels like we're always behind the eight ball. And I just – well, we played, like, these teams. Like, I mean, every game in the Big East is a battle. We've been beating that dead horse all year. That We can't be behind game in and game out, especially against um, – this is going to be a big deal when we play Providence uh, this Wednesday or today for yeah, those who are listening yep. because – Providence starts four grad seniors and a senior. Yeah, and very experienced team, very solid team, very ex- really, yeah. really well coached. I mean, Ed Cooley is awesome, and, and yeah. Absolutely. When you play an experienced and disciplined team combined with a team that can score very well with yeah. ease, like we can't get behind this team. So hopefully, Sintas uh, will provide that positive environment so that we don't fall behind early. I would love to see a big win, but obviously that doesn't come easy. Um, just a it's going to be a great game. I just hope, I really hope that um, we don't find fall behind the eight ball like we have been these past few games. Yeah, I would completely agree. And I think I think a win here uh, tonight would be huge just because you could roll that, um, get a huge win, get some momentum, and then go into a stretch of three games that are, I'm not going to say easier because obviously nothing in the Big East is easy, but is, you know, not as difficult as some of the other teams you're going to be facing. So obviously um, next week you've got or this Saturday, we're on the road at Creighton, and then two home games next week against Butler and DePaul. Rolling through those three games, or these next four games, and going 4-0 is really going to get some momentum going into the kind of a tougher end of the season schedule uh, for Xavier. So um, definitely something you got to keep an eye out for. But again, uh, St. John's still on the schedule twice, and they've been struggling a little bit, as well as Georgetown with that reschedule, still on the schedule twice. So definitely things are looking up. I don't think anyone needs to freak out in the Xavier camp. Um, but I do think you need to at least go three out of four in these next four. For sure. All right, that'll wrap it here on Tuesday, January 25th for us um, here on the Norwood Noise Podcast. Myself, Evan Schibble, alongside Graham Griffith. Thank you so much all for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back again next week, hopefully recapping a couple wins uh, and looking forward to the weeks coming. Uh, as our first, That'll be our first podcast of February. So mm-hmm. see you in February, Graham. Thanks all for right. tuning in, guys. I'll see you.